The following episode of Annals on Call is brought to you by Annals of Internal Medicine. For more episodes and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash oncall. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the Journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. I think from an ID standpoint, it's no longer, all right, I'm just going to give you my six weeks of bank. Here's the six weeks of bank and good luck to the primary team to figure out what to do. Welcome to Annals on Call, a podcast based upon articles from the Annals of Internal Medicine in which we discuss the implications of the article for you, the listener. This is Dr. Bob Centaur. I'm Professor Emeritus at the University of Alabama at Birmingham and former chair of the Board of Regents for the American College of Physicians. Welcome to this episode of Annals on Call. In this episode, we reflect on two articles from the January 1st, 2019 issue of the Annals of Internal Medicine. Trends in Drug Use Associated Infective Endocarditis and Heart Valve Surgery, 20. 7 and 2017, a study of statewide discharge data, and an accompanying editorial, Drug-Associated Infective Endocarditis Trends, What's All the Buzz About? Joining me on this podcast are two of my colleagues, Dr. Ellen Eaton, who is an assistant professor in the Division of Infectious Disease and director of our HIV outpatient-based opioid treatment clinic. She's a health services researcher who's most interested in infectious outcomes of addiction with an emphasis on HIV treatment and prevention. And Dr. Rachel Lee is also an assistant professor of medicine in infectious disease. She's the UAB medicine healthcare epidemiologist, and she works very closely with Dr. Eaton to improve care of patients with addiction and infectious complications. We hope you enjoy this podcast. Well, Rachel and Ellen, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. This particular podcast was stimulated by a patient that Rachel and I took care of recently. It was a man in his 40s. He's white, and that's important in epidemiology. And he presented with shoulder pain and sternocleidomastoid pain. He was known to use IV drugs and admitted to using both IV heroin and IV amphetamines. He had previously been on methadone, but had stopped the methadone and then had more stress in his life and more chronic pain and uh, started using IV drugs again. So he was admitted. He had a fever, an elevated white count. Blood cultures were drawn because of the fever, and four out of four grew uh, methicillin-resistant Staph aureus. So we started him on uh, appropriate antibiotics and called uh, our infectious disease consultant, Rachel Lee. We had gotten an echocardiogram, and the read was it's a very good window. Transthoracic echocardiogram uh, showed uh, no vegetations. Then we got some help from Rachel. So maybe you can fill in the rest of the story, Rachel. Yeah, I think a, a few things that made us clue into potentially getting a, a TEE includes the fact that we had him on good therapy, we had him on vancomycin for methicillin resistant Staphylococcus aureus. And despite that, despite good levels, uh, we were continuing to have bacteremia, so our cultures were remaining positive. So when we see that as infectious disease consultants, we look for other sources. Um, and in this case, you know, he had a lot of inflammation in his arm and around the joints and 
in addition to looking at his heart valves, we were also doing other examination to find for fluid and that sort of thing in the joints. I will say when I look at TTEs, first thing is, of course, how well are the windows? In particular, are they visualizing every single valve, including the tricuspid valve, the mitral valve, and the aortic valve in particular? The second thing I look at is whether or not there is any sort of regurgitation or flow issues on the TTE, and I don't believe this gentleman did. So I think that the main thing that made me want to get a TEE was the continued bacteremia without a clear source. And that did show a vegetation on the mitral valve. As many people who listen to this podcast know, I trained in the 70s. I was a, a young attending, like my colleagues here, in the 80s. And we saw a lot of endocarditis, but the epidemiology was very different. And the article that we uh, are referring to in this podcast refers to that epidemiology. And Rachel, why don't see if you and Ellen can sort of talk about how uh, the epidemiology of IV drug use and the epidemiology of endocarditis seems to have changed over the last 40 years. Right. I think that when we first started learning about injection drug use and what we know about the pathophysiology is that the tricuspid valve would be at high risk for having disease. Um, and that's typically the most commonly affected in those who inject drugs. Although over time that has changed. And actually in this case that we're discussing, it was a mitral valve that was affected and not a tricuspid valve. Ellen, is there anything else that you would include in the epidemiology? Well, I think of the demographic and the patient population when I trained, and now I can say when I trained, because it has been a few years, you know, our typical patient when I was rounding with Dr. Centaur, for example, would be an elderly male, often had chronic medical conditions, maybe had a history of valvular disease um, in the past. And what we're seeing now, and it's been well documented, not just in the Southeast and Appalachia, but across the U.S., is that with the drug use epidemic, and I say drug use because it's opioids, but also other injected amphetamines and other um, illicit substances, is that we're seeing a younger demographic. We're seeing more women. And depending where you are and what types of drugs are trending, you may see a prevalence for more Caucasians, for example, in Appalachia associated with opioid injection. But also we see it, you know, a fair number of racial and ethnic minorities as well, but definitely younger and certainly more females. And this has a lot of implications for treatment, women of reproductive age, pregnant women even, um, and can make treatment much more complicated. I was told by one of my colleagues that the, the sternocleidomastoid inflammation was pretty classic for uh, IV drug use endocarditis. I did not know that. And I assume you're both shaking your head as if, well, I should have known that. Uh, so that's just a clue in case you happen to see it. So the treatment decisions are really interesting now. There was a time maybe 10 years ago that if I had someone like this, they would stay in the hospital for six weeks getting IV antibiotics. Rachel, we didn't keep this guy in the hospital for six weeks. What is the current thought in uh, the infectious disease community about how to treat these people long-term? When I think about treating these patients, I try to treat them with the best evidence medication that we have. And so typically what we know works for MRSA endocarditis is, um, is IV medications, including vancomycin and daptomycin. In this case, um, this gentleman really probably wouldn't be the best candidate for a PICC line. And maybe Dr. Eaton can talk about some of our work in terms of identifying patients who are at risk for having PICC lines. But based on that information and in discussion with this patient, um, because he was a higher risk for having those lines, 
we ended up choosing an oral antibiotic. And luckily, linazolid is a very highly bioavailable drug and it works really, really well for um, MRSA. And so we ended up choosing that. It did have some implications um, given what we were giving him to help prevent craving for opioids. And so we can also talk a little bit about that as well, because there are some nuances with using linazolid and methadone and those sorts of things. Let me just get this straight. Uh, whereas 10 years ago, we would do six weeks of IV antibiotics. There seems to be a trend in the literature, not just for IV drug user endocarditis, but for any endocarditis that we can go to oral antibiotics much faster than we thought we could. Is that correct? I would say yes, as long as we have a good medication that works for the pathogen. I, th I think the bigger issue really comes down to what is safe in this patient population? And you know what Dr. Eaton and I have, have looked at is what's called a pick risk assessment. And so we've asked these patients you know, at the time when they're coming in, this is a really a crossroads for them when they're dealing with the height of their addiction as well as a very severe infection. And so are they ready to be able to have an IV line that is accessible for them? And, and what can we do to give them the best care? So Ellen, maybe you could talk a little bit more about that because that seems to be a major decision. We tried very early on to treat both his opioid addiction as well as treating the endocarditis. Our consultant on uh, the addiction felt that uh, methadone was going to be the best strategy. He was not interested in uh, uh, Suboxone at all. Yeah, so in terms of um, treatment for the underlying opioid use disorder, I'm glad that you thought about that and engaged with an addiction medicine physician, because what we know is that treatment for opioid use disorder is the cornerstone of endocarditis treatment in this patient population. We should view it as essential, as the antibiotics, really in terms of being able to keep our patients engaged in care, allowing them to complete their antibiotics and follow up with us if necessary to survey their infection, make sure they truly have reached a cure. So treating the underlying substance use disorder is really important. In terms of the specific treatment, methadone versus buprenorphine, I'm not sure of the exact rationale for the provider. Remember, methadone is an opioid, a complete, a full opioid agonist, so you can titrate it up to control for pain in addition to treating the opioid use disorder and withdrawal. So if someone, if it's someone who's had good experience with methadone or is well controlled in terms of their symptoms of both withdrawal and pain and any other symptoms, then it can be used effectively. And certainly this is, methadone is a, a treatment that's been used for a long time since the seventies. We have a lot of experience with it in this patient population. And if it's working, I think that, that I would continue that and encourage them on discharge to continue that. Um, and it, there is great data that shows that they're much more likely to complete their treatment for endocarditis and have better outcomes if they are treated um, in conjunction with their infection management. And then to, to Rachel's point, there are a lot of great new data on outpatient IV antibiotics in this patient population that show that a lot of the myths we had are not necessarily founded in good data. So for example, there's some groups across the U.S. who have studied OPAT type programs in patients with substance use. We assume these patients are going to use their PICC lines to inject because a lot of us haven't really asked them. And there's qualitative data that shows that patients who are substance users 
are, are concerned about their health. And the last thing they want to do is inject in their, in their pick line and that they are also hoping for that same cure of this, you know, very serious infection. So there are groups who have done trials that have shown patients who inject drugs, who go out with an OPAT type, um, management program do do well and don't have worse outcomes than those that don't use substances. We know that in places like Alabama, there's a lot of policy and procedure that keeps us from sending our patients out. For example, if they don't have what's perceived to be a stable home life, a lot of our infusion companies will not even consider letting them go home with IV antibiotics. So there's other barriers to take into consideration. I think we're gonna continue to hear more and more about what other innovative programs that other hospitals are doing OHSU, for example, has done some really innovative work. Kentucky, there are people that are looking at um, sending patients to a skilled rehab facility for an interim or even hotels for an interim low acuity monitoring before they go back to, you know, wherever they were residing before the hospital. And then what we've done here at UAB, which Rachel alluded to, is we've used a risk stratification tool that we developed here at UAB with our addiction medicine teams that's very intuitive. And it looks at things like, social setting at home? Do you have a supportive home environment? Recent overdoses, it looks at, you know, substance using behaviors and also the social environment. And it's a nine item checklist that we use to determine if we think patients are going to do well in terms of their antibiotics at home. And I think really that the main barrier to using that assessment across a broad population is that it's not really appropriate for homeless patients because I think what we found is regardless of how stable you are in recovery and how many friends and family you have, if you're not living in a home, a traditional home, it's really hard, for example, to get your IV antibiotics to you out on the street. So that risk assessment is not as relevant for a homeless population, but for us in Alabama, where most of our patients are housed, who are actively using, it's been a helpful tool and we've shown that it improves patient outcomes and reduces costs. Just because I don't know all the lingo, what is OPET? It's an outpatient parenteral antibiotic program where you can get IV antibiotics at home. So any of the patients that we send out on, on IV antibiotics, like a lot of times these are run by infectious disease doctors and we're monitoring their labs. We're in touch with home health just to make sure that these patients aren't developing acute kidney injury and other side effects of the medication. Our patient actually did not fit outpatient parenteral there was an episode of drugs being smuggled into the hospital and showing up on his urine drug screen. You know, it's interesting because I talked with him about that and it was at the time when they were still titrating his methadone. So his methadone was still low. He was dealing with a lot of cravings and had a point of breaking down and ended up using. And, and I think, you know, one of the things as, as clinicians, when we talk to these patients, being real and being open about what has happened is probably one of the best things that you can do with those patients. Um, it normalizes having that conversation. There's no stigma associated with it. And, and I think that helped him. And when we made the final decision about sending him home on oral antibiotics, it was not a, a failure and we're not choosing something that's not as good. It's more of a, we're making the best decision together um, to treat this infection. So, so the last thing I want to talk about is, I, I know both of you are involved, I know Ellen especially is involved with trying to prevent disease in patients who use IV drugs. And maybe the two of you could talk a little bit about that. Ellen, talk a little bit about what strategies are being used around the country and what should we know if we have patients who are IV drug users 
in our practice or when we interact with them in the hospital for some other reason? This is a really important question, especially for those of us who practice in um, states and regions where we don't have access to insurance for a lot of our vulnerable and impoverished populations. And the reason I say that is because the hospital is their primary care. The hospital is their preventive care, their routine health maintenance. And so I'm, I'm really glad you're thinking about this because this is their touch point. And you can imagine that this population because of the behaviors associated with substance use definitely meet criteria for HIV screening and hepatitis C screening. But they also probably need to be screened for syphilis, especially in places like Alabama. We're having, you know, STI outbreaks, um, especially in conjunction with the coronavirus pandemic. They're also at very high risk for hepatitis A. And many of the states across the U.S., including Alabama, are experiencing hepatitis A clusters and outbreaks, especially since the advent of coronavirus. So is this an opportunity to give them a hepatitis A vaccine? And that's something that Rachel is working with in conjunction with our public health health department in identifying patients who are at risk in the hospital, again, because they're not going frequently to primary care doctors. And, you know, it's not just an insurance issue. We do have low barrier qualified health centers across Jefferson County, but there's a whole lot of stigma. Um, the issues that um, also lead them to presenting with very late, you know, late advanced endocarditis also keep them from preventing for pap smears and pelvic exams and flu shots. So a lot of the routine vaccination that they meet criteria for, they're not going to get. And it's a great time to talk to them about harm reduction. It's a great time to talk to them about HIV risk. My understanding from talking to a lot of my patients in the South is that they associate HIV with men who have sex with men and minority populations. And a lot of them don't appreciate their HIV risk, even though about 5% of our patients at UAB who inject drugs have HIV. So it's a great time to talk to them about HIV prevention, pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, hepatitis C treatment. Some of them don't know they have hepatitis C and don't know that it is something they can be cured from. So this is a time where although they are experiencing a severe bacterial infection, they're often with us for a couple weeks, maybe not six weeks, but they're with us long enough for us to develop therapeutic relationships with them, treat their pain, treat their withdrawal. You're certainly not going to talk them into a hep A vaccine if you're also allowing them to have uncontrolled opioid withdrawal. You need to create a very supportive therapeutic environment for them in the hospital. And each day, I think about peeling back the layers of an onion. Each day you can do a little bit more harm reduction counseling. Each day you can offer something else. You can start mentioning that they're gonna need to engage with the primary care doctor for their hepatitis C so that by the time they're ready to leave the hospital, whether they're discharged or if they leave prematurely, which I know as Rachel alluded to does happen, you've each day addressed harm reduction and their needs for prevention. And so it's not just a discharge paperwork when they're leaving that points them in multiple different directions for multiple different services, but you've counseled them along the way and they're better prepared to prevent these infections that we know are much more common in this patient population. Is there anything we can do? It's a failure by the time they come in with endocarditis. So what can be done to try to prevent IV drug users from getting endocarditis? So we have ways to help them with their IV drug use if they're willing, but in the meantime, let's try not to have the, uh, and we've all seen disasters of endocarditis. You're exactly right. And um, this is something that we're not taught often in medical school, but it can have a huge impact. So asking them what drugs they use and how they use them is a really important first step. 
a lot of my patients who use heroin who are females actually insufflate it, so they snort it. So their risks are very different from my patients who inject it. Um, talking to them about sterile needles every time and any of the materials they use, sterilizing them or getting new ones. If they're going to inject, it's a lot safer to inject in their upper extremities than their groin or their neck. These are simple things that you can do in counseling your patients, um, talking to them about bleach and how to sterilize the materials, talking to them about where they can get sterile needles, knowing who your community partners are and certainly your policy. Uh, we know in Alabama, we're really limited in syringe services, but some programs and, and regions across the U.S. have lots of access to sterile syringes. And there are community partners and aid services organizations that can connect them to PrEP, HIV prevention and hepatitis C treatment. Um, so there's a lot of counseling that can happen. I think it's really challenging because this takes time. And for most of us as internists and ID docs, we're seeing a large volume of patients in the hospital. And it's really hard to make 10, 15 minutes to sit down and ask these questions that are personal and private questions. What kind of drugs do you use? How do you use them? Who do you use them with? But they're really important in terms of counseling and harm reduction. And this is a great opportunity for the medical student, for them to get comfortable early in their training, asking these really intimate and personal and frankly, stigmatizing questions. A lot of these questions, you have to use certain language to support your patient and not further ostracize them. So it's a great opportunity for your medical students to really have those intimate conversations and develop that therapeutic relationship with the patient. And like I said, counseling can go a, a really long way. And in places like Alabama, where we don't talk about these topics a lot, you'd be surprised that our patients have a a severe lack of knowledge and awareness around harm reduction. These topics aren't discussed. They're very much taboo here. Rachel, do you have anything to add? I think uh, it is incredibly hard when we've been taught as clinicians in one particular way to start thinking outside of the box. And, and one of those ways in terms of harm reduction is, is a syringe program. I mean, I think in our heads, we're like, we're, how can we allow people to continue to use drugs through the syringe program, but there, the evidence is time and time again shown that it reduces risk of infection. You know, let's take Illinois. Illinois had a major outbreak of HIV, and by having a syringe program, they were able to reduce that and, and get rid of that outbreak through that um, process. So, and also what Ellen was talking about, which was having those touch points, be able to talk to patients to get them into therapy, and that's what those programs do. I think from an ID standpoint, it's no longer, all right, I'm just going to give you my six weeks of bank. Here's the six weeks of bank and good luck to the primary team to figure out what to do. It is much more of a multidisciplinary approach to making sure that we are on the same page with the patient as well as making sure we're doing what's right for them. And we were fortunate in this situation in that uh, we're able to have the patient come back to see you, Rachel, to make sure the endocarditis is doing okay, but also to follow up on a lot of the things that Ellen just mentioned. Rachel and Ellen, I can't thank you enough for joining us. I think this is uh, really useful. This is for any of us who practice hospital medicine. We see this uh, more often than we wish we saw it. And for those people in primary care, many uh, primary care physicians have patients uh, who are using IV drugs. And if they are, I think you've given them some really good advice on things that should be approached in discussion and uh, in education. Ellen, do you have any last words? 
I would just really encourage everyone to start thinking about substance use treatment as a cornerstone to infection treatment and prevention because we know that substance use treatment is infection prevention. And I think if we can really acknowledge that and own it and start learning how to treat it, our patients are gonna have much better outcomes. Rachel, you get the last word. I think it's important for us to work together with our patients to find what's the best treatment for infection and always continue doing sleuthing. Um, When you have a patient that has continued bacteremia, we like to try to find the source. Thank you. Now it's time for Bob's Pearls. This uh, wide-ranging discussion uh, focused on several important points. First is that the epidemiology of infective endocarditis in uh, drug users has changed. Uh, Forty years ago, it was mostly an older inner-city population, mostly uh, right-side endocarditis. Now uh, it's much broader and common across the country, a less inner-city population, more women, and more left-sided endocarditis uh, than we saw back in the 70s and 80s. The big message here to me is that if we're going to treat patients who have uh, IV drug use and endocarditis, we have to treat both the IV drug use and the endocarditis. And working with the patient to try to come up with a game plan and a prevention plan for further infections is our responsibility. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. For more episodes of Annals on Call and links to CME and MOC, visit go.annals.org slash on call. Participant statements on this podcast reflect the views of the participants and not necessarily those of the journal or the American College of Physicians, unless so identified. The information contained in the podcast should never be used as a substitute for clinical judgment.